This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 5th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. The reader is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. morning's scripture reading comes from Haggai chapter 1, which is in between Zechariah and Zephaniah. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shittael, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jezodach, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of, because of my house that it lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittael, and Joshua, the son of Jezodach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of uh, the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittael, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jezodach, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are going through the book of Haggai, and we spent last week in the book of Ezra to kind of set the stage for Haggai. So if you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to read it because it gives you a lot of context. And I'll briefly mention Ezra as we begin here to kind of bring clarity to where um, this is set in. So I'm going to pray uh, and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father God, we praise you for your goodness and your greatness and your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you have done everything necessary to bring us back into relationship with our Lord Thank you that we are forgiven and redeemed and adopted and indwelt with your Spirit that we might be able 
to obey all that you have commanded us and fulfill the mission purpose you have for us. I thank you that we are not the only expression of your church in this place, that, that there are churches, Father, here, churches like Redemption, who blessed us with donuts this morning. God, be praised for them. But they're an awesome young church plant, and we are grateful to be in partnership with them. Pray that they will be blessed this morning as they worship you and bring glory to you. Lord, we also think of our own body. I pray for uh, Dana Perez and Aaron as well, who lost her mom this morning. Ask that you, Lord, would be a comfort to them, and that they will grieve, but not without hope, for she knows you and she's with you, and that is a glorious thing to think about. Lord, for the sermon this morning, would you move me out of the way? Holy Spirit, speak the words you need to speak, words of comfort, instruction, conviction. Bring us to a place where we are glorying and praising the beauty of what you have done and what you have called us to do in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week we talked about the exile of God's people and how that came about and then how they were sent back, if you will, as God stirred the heart of this Persian pagan king named Cyrus to return to the land and rebuild his house, which is an amazing and and incredible expression of God's sovereignty over a pagan leader. So Cyrus makes this decree, says send them back, rebuild, fund them, and they return. And as we saw last week in Ezra chapter 3, they laid the foundation, they wept, and they rejoiced as they worshipped God, and they started to rebuild from that moment this house called the temple. And when pagan enemies who lived in Israel, they were inhabiting Israel, the people who had been there when they arrived, they'd also been brought there by the Assyrians, so it wasn't their homeland. They hear about this rebuilding program and they go to Jerusalem and they go to where they are rebuilding this temple and they say, hey, can we help? Because ever since we've been here, we've been worshiping the same God too. Wink, wink. And the Israelites are not amused. Um, They actually say, no, you cannot help us. It's something we must do, something we are going to do. Uh, And so the inhabitants or the enemies, if you will, of God's people work very hard from that moment to hinder their work through threats and bribes. They make it very hard for them for many years. And I was reminded because um, this is one of those weeks and they come where you have discouraging moments and I had heard a short podcast of Ravi Zacharias and he reminded me that whenever you are working for the Lord, working to build something for the Lord, there will always be opposition. And some of the most difficult opposition are those whom you think are on your team, but they are not. So these people come and say, hey, we worship the same God, and they make it really hard for them. But persecution goes on for many years until Israel's enemies, this people, after uh, almost a dozen years probably of persecution, send what amounts to a scheming letter to the new king of Persia, Artaxerxes. You'll see there's different kings that show up, which give us kind of time frames for when this happened. And in the letter, they claim, they say, look, these Jews have been rebuilding this temple and this city for a long time, and you should be really worried 
Because if you look back in the records of history, you will see that this was a very evil people, a very rebellious people, and if they complete the city and complete the temple and rebuild the walls, they will refuse to pay taxes. And they'll rebel. Check it out yourself, they say. And so Artaxerxes does. And as he reviews the records and investigates, he realizes, well, that's kind of true. And so he sends his own letter authorizing the people to forcibly stop the rebuilding program. And so these people who were initially excited, these exiles had returned, were passionate and zealous for God's work, are suddenly stopped. Their zeal is expunged. Their work is forcibly ceased. Enter Haggai. They had been working for 12 to 14 years and they had stopped working for about two. So since they laid the foundation to the beginning of Haggai, it's probably about 16 years. But they hadn't done anything for two years. In Ezra chapter 5, which I'll briefly read, the first two verses, Ezra 4 ends, they forcibly stop them. There's a two-year chunk, which they don't mention. And then Ezra 5 starts, says, Now when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah they come about the same time. The son of Edo prophesies to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. So Haggai and Zechariah show up. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Haggai shows up, and they start rebuilding again. And the letter or the prophecy, if you will, of Haggai here is what was said to get them moving again. As I said, the work had stopped for two years. I don't know if you ever had that experience as a Christian. For those who have been in Christ for longer than two years, for a length of time, where you have zeal for the Lord, passion for the Lord, and that passion is interrupted. Something comes into your life and it's almost by force, something you can't control, a a situation, a circumstance, suffering, prosperity, whatever, and, and your once zealous energy and passion for the Lord stops. You ever had a multi year speed bump in your faith? A long pause. It's at those times, at those pauses, for whatever reason they come, where they literally come upon you, that I believe our devotion to God's firstness in our life is vulnerable. Because in our fear, or maybe our exhaustion, or just our disillusionment, we get busy. We get busy with the wrong things. We busy our lives with all kinds of other things. And that exciting time you have for the Lord, whether it be you know, when you first became a Christian or when you returned to the Lord like the exiles or that mission trip or that time helping out with that church plant or whatever it was, that, that moment where you're like, man, I remember I was passionate and zealous and excited and it's now just a distant memory. It's that time we talked about. God is still present in your life, but you are not endeavoring to dwell in His presence 
and life is feeling more unsatisfying than ever. And like maybe the Israelites in Haggai's time, you are spending your days walking by the ruins of a half-built temple. You can imagine every day walking by, oh, oh man, I remember that. Remember that exciting time. And go about your day. Oh, I was so we all we were we were in it together. It was energy. There was passion. We were accomplishing things. Wow, God seems so. I'll get back to what I need to get done. Walking by those ruins every day. Well, after a two-year delay or two years of doing that, the Lord shows up, and the Lord. Um, is going to confront His people. Because when those times happen, where you feel like your passion is waning, your zeal has gone down, it's so tempting to go, look at all these problems. This is the reason why this has happened. And the Lord comes and He speaks a very hard word in the face of these people and says, the problem is not anything outside of yourself. And the first thing that He says, we see in verse 2, He basically declares what they've been saying. So we're like, hey, I've been listening, guys. Here's what you've been saying. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not time to rebuild the house of God yet. Now, as we discussed last week, when we're talking about rebuilding the temple We're talking about more than just providing a location to do religious stuff. It's not just a building. It certainly is a building, and there's certainly religious things that happen at that building that are important and glorious, but that's not what this is about. The temple, as I said, represents God's presence among His people. It is the place of identification at the center of their lives, at the center of their city, This is what we're about. This is who we are. It's the place of instruction. It's the place where the covenant relationship between God and man was truly, tangibly displayed. And so their unwillingness to make sure that that comes together completely, their unwillingness to rebuild is really their unwillingness to fight to keep the presence of God first in their lives. And it's more than just an unfortunate loss. Like, oh, well, gosh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. It is an active and ungrateful rejection of God's grace. They are rejecting God at the center of their lives. What does that mean? Well, despite the fact that they were forcibly stopped, like they were stopped, it says forcibly stopped by something or someone, they actually believed by not fighting, by refusing to, like basically to give, by giving up, they were actively believing and communicating that they thought they could continue without God's presence and be fine. The Lord's case against the people through Haggai was really clear. You guys don't want me. Was what God was saying. More than that, it was, it, it was a declaration that you really don't think you need me in your lives to do the things that you think you need to do. 
You're not desperate for me. You, don't, you think my presence and, and dwelling with me and living at me at the center of your life is optional or just a nice little bonus that, well, it kind of helps, but you don't really need me. You don't want me. That's a dangerous place to live. I was reminded of the story in the Exodus. Our women are studying that book right now. It's the story of God redeeming His people out of Egypt. And if you read the the full story, all kinds of things happen when they get out of Egypt. He takes them to the Mount Sinai and Moses goes up onto the mountain. That's where he gets the law and he has these exchanges with God that are very powerful. And as they're coming down off the mountain after many days of being up there, they hear a noise and Moses is listening and Joshua who's with him is listening like, Hmm, Joshua's like, that sounds like war in the camp. And Moses is like, no, that's a party. And not a good one. And they go down and they have constructed, by putting all their gold together, this golden calf of which one of the commands of God was to not make any idols. And he comes down and he's like, what the snarf is going on here? They have a full worship service going on and he lays down the lumber. And the people are punished. And God is angry. And Moses is angry. And then after that time in Exodus 33, God begins to speak to Moses. And He tells Moses something. He says, "All right, Moses, why don't you take these people up? Now that we've dealt with that, forgiven, we're moving on. Why don't you take these people, I want you to keep going. And um, I'll send an angel to protect you. And I'll drive out the armies in front of you, but I'm not going with you. And I'm not going to be among you. And Moses uh, goes up to the tent of meeting, which is away from the camp where he would speak to God face to face. And he says a couple things to him, but in particular, he says this in Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16. If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Like you hear the heart of Moses and you hear the heart of what the people ought be, the heart of what our cry should be. Moses says, I don't want to move ahead without you, God. I do not want to move anywhere, go anywhere, if you're not going with me. I don't want to stay where I'm at, God, if you're not going to be there. I don't want to go where you're not if you're not going to be there. And you think about it for us, like, do we live that way? I don't want to make a decision without you, God. I don't want to think or feel or speak or act without you, God. I don't want to do life without you, God. It's not that I just want you in my life. I need you in my life to do everything, to do anything, no matter how small and significant it might be. I want your presence with me. Like That's, that's how Scripture calls us to feel yeah, you know, Scripture can call us to feel certain ways. It calls us to be in terms of our attitude toward the presence of God, but that's not what these people are saying. 
in the refusal to rebuild where his presence is most tangibly seen and felt. The people are saying, not yet. I'm not ready. It's not ready. Something's not ready for me to fully devote myself living for God. And they are making what amounts to very acceptable sounding excuses of not making God first in their lives. So in verse 3, you have really verse 4, the holy sarcasm of God. And he calls it like it is. He's just said in verse 2, you say it's not time. And what does he say in verse 4? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You say it's not time to rebuild my house. Is it time for you to live in your own houses? To build your own houses? The reality is, they have plenty of time, and it's actually the right time, but they are too busy running after other things. They are using the time that they do have, the energy that they do have, to pursue satisfaction in all other areas of life apart from God. And that doesn't mean that they are pursuing the worst evils and indulging in all sin. It simply means that they are filling their hands and their calendars with everything but God. It's not merely that you're just not doing God's work. Because guess what? You can do what's called God's work without God. What they are doing is not involving God in any of the work that they're doing. God has a house of ruins. And he says, you have these paneled, awesome homes. And we think of paneled homes and it's not just that God has this half-built house and you guys have built yourself mansions. Exactly. Biblically, when we talk about paneled homes, that was certainly a style of construction, but it's most identified with the building of God's house and the king's house. Those were the paneled houses in Scripture. And so they have done more than just build homes that are great and not finish God's home. God's house was to be this paneled temple. And that paneled temple was a place of worship. It was a place where they devoted themselves in all sense of the word, to honoring God and glorifying God and worshiping God and celebrating God. It is the place where they would find ultimate satisfaction and perspective and contentment. That was the paneled house that now is unfinished. But they have finished and built beautiful paneled homes for themselves. These aren't just homes. These are places of worship, if you will. They are replacing what this was supposed to be. They are places that are not just places of worship, but places with thrones built in them, if you will, where they are the Lord of their own lives, seeking glorification for themselves in all other areas. In many ways, they have neglected the priorities and things of God 
and given their best to things for themselves. And we do this. It's idolatry. And the reason we make idols is because we imagine some hell that we want to be saved from. And that hell could be, man, the, the, the worst place I can imagine is not being able to pay my bills or not being able to live a certain lifestyle. And so our Savior becomes this job, this career where I can find my security and can find my hope and can find my joy and my contentment. That's where I'm going to worship. That's where I will rule. And so the question we all have to ask ourselves, which was good for, for me this week, but also quite convicting, is, so what is your paneled house? What is, what is that thing that gets your best? That gets your best of your, your time and your talent and your treasure that really has nothing to do for God or has everything to do for God, but God isn't there? What have you given your best to? Believing that you're going to find true contentment if you do. Well, God challenges His people with this particular phrase that He says multiple times in this text, but multiple times in the letter. He says it here in verse 5, and then He says it again in verse 7. After asking them, is it time for you to build your own homes? In verse 5, He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think carefully about your ways, He says. Think carefully about what you're doing. And he, if you read in verse 6, he says, look, let's see how this has worked out for you. You've ignored me. You have said my presence isn't necessary to do the things you want to do in your life. How has that worked out for all the things that you're doing? And what does he say? You have sown much and harvested little. You eat and you never have enough. You drink and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. You earn wages and you put them in bags with holes in them. Again, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Think about what you are doing. 